Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This episode is called The Connection Between Addiction and Domestic Violence with Michael Parkinson. Michael works at the Waterloo Region Crime Prevention Council, and he's an expert when it comes to addiction and substance use. In this episode, he tells us about the relationship between addiction and domestic violence. He explains how drugs are often used as a coping mechanism by people who've experienced trauma and what we can do to support people in these situations. He also speaks about the need for an upstream approach and prevention work and what we can do to reach people earlier before an addiction begins. It was so interesting to hear from Michael. He has worked in this field for a really long time and he has such an in-depth understanding of addiction and substance use and it was so great to learn from him. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence and abuse which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank our episode sponsor, 570 News, local reporters and local journalists keeping you connected to your community 24-7 with the latest breaking news from where you live. Stay up to date with everything happening in your ever-changing universe with 570 News, Kitchener's local source for news, sports, and talk. Hi, Michael. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Jenna. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to be talking a bit about addiction and domestic violence. Before we get into that, I was hoping that maybe you could just share a little bit about yourself for everybody listening. Sure. Um, Well, my name is Michael and my last name is Parkinson. And for, uh, I guess, almost 15 years now, I've been privileged to work for an organization called the Waterloo Region Crime Prevention Council. And um, for for a quarter of a century, the council um, has been a, a national model for crime prevention through social development. And the, the membership, it's, it's community-led um, and is, is laser-focused on, on preventing and reducing uh, not just crime, but also victimization and fear of crime. And of course, that naturally leads us into areas of domestic violence and a uh, whole range of issues. And it's always been the preference of the council that the less we can be reactive to uh, issues of crime and victimization, social harms, uh, the more we can be preventative. Well, that's better for everybody, um, whether you're part of the taxpaying public or are uh, you one of those potential victims or, or a perpetrator of crime. So that's where I've been privileged to work. It's a really small shop, a, a committed staff, and um, a community-led board of, of 35 uh, uh, members from the Waterloo Region community. So, and through that work, uh, like a lot of a lot of really substantial efforts to um, 
to address uh, the the overdose poisoning crisis that is now you know in full swing uh, from coast to coast to coast across Canada. Um, you know, so we were the first to identify the the bootleg fentanyls in Canada as far back as 2008 um, and 2013, and pretty much every year since. Um, and previous to that, you know, I had some experience working with um, uh, managing a food bank in town, um, uh, working in shelters, including uh, uh, the YWCA's uh, shelter, Mary's Place, as it was called back in the day. So long history of sort of direct service, but also a, a strong interest in in policy development and in particular those structural determinants of health that, that guide so much of our health and uh, safety and well-being uh, in Waterloo Region. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. You have such a wide range of experiences. I'm really excited that you shared that with us, and I can't wait to learn from you today. So uh, thank you again for sharing that. Yeah, I've been privileged to lead a, a charmed life, I have to say. So um, I'm grateful for all those opportunities, you know, for, even from the folks at the YW uh, back in the day, you know, taking a chance on hiring a guy to work in, in, in a women's shelter, right? Uh, it was a big step, and um, I like to think that it worked out uh, w well both for the, 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 the residents of the shelter and for myself. It was, it was a fantastic opportunity, and I'm happy to have landed at the Crime Prevention Council. Oh, yeah, that's great. No, I think that's a good point, too. I think even today, you know, when we're talking about men working or even coming to shelters, I think that's something I get asked a lot by by donors. You know, can can I come to the shelter if I'm a man? Is that even allowed? And it's just something we're constantly working on saying, yeah, no, that's no problem. You know, in the past, that actually would have been an issue. But things have changed now. And uh and it's, it's good to see, and I think we need our male allies, so I think that's that's great, and yeah, that's pretty cool. So, so yeah, so thank you for being here, and uh, I think we'll get into some of these questions now. So um, I have quite a few things that I want to ask you about today. So first, I kind of just want to start talking about addiction and domestic violence. Uh, I know that they are linked in a really strong way, and I'm wondering if you could just sh tell us a little bit about the connection. Well, I can try. Um... There is a relationship there, and um, often, you know, in society, we, we tend to focus on specific substances. So I think, you know, in 2021, everybody's heard about the fentanyls. That wasn't true, uh, you know, even just six years ago. Um, and if we're looking at specific substances, uh, alcohol, of course, is is, is drives uh, so much of domestic violence. It's just the, 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 the pharmacological effects it has on, on people's uh, behavior um, and, and at the point of addiction, of course, it's regardless of the substance. It's it's really about managing uh, withdrawal, and withdrawal is something you want to avoid. Whether it's you're using opioids or, or, or stimulants or uh, depressants like alcohol, and uh, I think people often forget how how much that drives behavior. And um, you know, I had the privilege of spending uh, some time with Gabor Mate, a physician from. Uh, British Columbia, but a lot of background in early childhood development and, and trauma-informed therapy and and so on and so forth. And, you know, where we landed was uh, at, at the point of addiction, people are doing exactly what their brain tells them to do. It's it's about acquiring the substance. And, um, you know, in for, for, for people who move to a more abstinence base or, or, or using a lot less of the substances, um, there's a lot of shame involved in uh, when, when they look back at some of the behaviors they engaged in it, that um, the, the things they never thought they 
they could see themselves doing that they never wanted for themselves or in the case of domestic violence uh, uh, for their partner right um, so there's th there's a there's a strong link between substance use and um, uh, and domestic violence and sometimes uh, the substance use um, uh, begins before uh, the violence in the home uh, erupts uh, and sometimes it's it's a coping mechanism for uh, victims of domestic violence um, you, know, you know one of the really great things about drugs at least in the short term is uh, it, it can soothe emotional pain it can soothe uh, physical pain and so you know which comes first it doesn't really matter domestic violence is not acceptable anytime um, but for women in particular yeah the, the, no surprise uh, to listeners here that bear the brunt of, uh, of violence um, w whether it's addiction or uh, l less frequent substance use and you know we've seen that in not just you know intimate partner violence but um, in drug drug using communities, um, particularly for people who are using the unregulated drugs, where uh, in a, in a bit of a relationship, whether it's intimate or not, it's it's women who are disproportionately and negatively uh, impacted. When you look at rates of victimization, it's, it's off the charts for women in particular, and you know the practices around around substance use. It's it's women who typically bear the the brunt of the negative experience and. For, for folks who are using unregulated substances like the stimulants or uh, the opioids like fentanyls. It's a real reluctance to reach out for help because those are criminalized substances and there's a real fear of um, not being able to manage withdrawal. There's a fear of becoming in conflict with the law and, and then there's all the fears that go around, you know, sort of that street culture, if you will, of being called a rat um, because at the end of the day, you know, if at the point of addiction, uh, you need to get the drugs, and 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 to get the drugs, um, you need to be hooked into that community. And um, if you're called out for being a rat, uh, that kind of thing, it makes that much more difficult. So, you know, you're back to the point of people are self-managing really what is a medical condition from the under the Ontario Human Rights Commission, and and so they're self-managing that health condition the best way they know how, and for that. You need the drugs in the absence of, you know, addiction treatment on demand, uh, in the absence of good harm reduction supports, uh, and in the absence of uh, sort of a criminal justice system that uh, is able to address health and, and medical and, and social issues. Um, it's an ill-equipped system, despite the vast amounts of money that, and the best efforts of people involved in, in, in enforcement courts and corrections. So. I think it would please all of us uh, uh, at the council for sure, but more broadly, um, to really have, uh, be able to engage in sort of those upstream prevention approaches that not just prevent the onset of domestic violence, but also you know problematic substance use, educational attainment, labor force participation. When what we've learned at the council is the, the farther upstream you can drive uh, policy and programming, the the earlier in childhood, including in utero, that you begin the more of those sort of uh, health and social issues you can knock off, if you will. They, uh, we're not dealing with the downstream effects that are, you know, often land in the um, in, in shelters and, and other uh, agencies that, um, you know, do their best under trying circumstances to, 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 to mitigate those harms. And, and we both know that those harms are real and they're serious. And, um, you know, during the pandemic, it, it's, it's been particularly trying for 
for not just for service provider staff, but also for uh, victims of domestic violence um, and people who uh, are suffering through addiction. Thank you. Yeah, oh, you just gave us so much good information there. Yeah, I think so many good points there that are kind of sticking with me. I've, I've made a few notes as you've been talking because I want to make sure I get to them all if I can. Um, but first of all, really cool about Gabor Mate and how um, your connection there. I think that's pretty interesting to learn. So I appreciate you sharing that. It's very cool. Also, something that you said at the beginning there uh, about soothing the emotional and physical pain um, when it comes to substance use and those who've experienced domestic violence, I think that's something really important to kind of think about. And I don't think it's something general public thinks about all the time, is that that link there and how, you know, when you have experienced extreme trauma, like the women that we're serving, there's only so many coping mechanisms, you know, there's some healthier and unhealthier ones, but basically I think people need to do what they need to do to get by in that moment when you're living in that that trauma brain, that trauma environment, and it, it can be hard to move forward. So that was something that really stuck out to me. Um, I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to elaborate on that or any more thoughts about that. Well, well it sticks out for me too. And I, uh, you know, whether that trauma ha- is ongoing in the present day or it's uh, rooted in, um, you know, childhood experiences, uh, trauma, abuse, uh, neglect, and, you, you know, it's real and, and, and it works in the short term. I remember. Uh, meeting uh, a woman out in uh, when I was out in Vancouver um, she would have been mid-twenties and um, uh, she had suffered through uh, child abuse and neglect uh, terrible experiences in childhood and um, she tried heroin for the first time at uh, in her early 20s and um, for the first time in her life she felt at home at peace with herself and all that pain all that noise and that had unsettled her life to that point um, disappeared, right? And she, she felt comfortable in her own skin and uh, for the first time. And, um, you know, the years went on and it, bec- it, it doesn't work so well anymore. Um, but that's, you know, when Gabor and I uh, had got to spend time together, I mean, at the end of the day, people are doing exactly what their brain tells them to do. We don't really have to understand it, um, just have to accept it and, and work um, on the prevention end, but also at that point um, on things to to mitigate the harms and, and all that other noise in, in people's brains. So, you know, you would see higher rates of addiction in uh, Indigenous communities, uh, Canada's first peoples, um, and that's sometimes related to uh, abuse, neglect, trauma uh, in their life, but also, you know, we know now that it passes through generations and what happened in in mom or dad's life or or their grandparents life um, has an impact on our life today it's fairly mind-blowing i mean the 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 advances of neuroscience uh, continually astound me and uh, like what a fascinating fascinating field Um, so we know so much more than than we did just you know a year or 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 two ago and uh, for, for people in domestic violence situations or uh, or, or using substances, um, they're, they're doing exactly what their brains tell them to do. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful but short-lived uh, sort of coping experience uh, for people. Yeah, and you were talking a lot about prevention, about 
upstream approaches and I think that's so important to talk about and it's something we have a lot of conversations about um, at our organization at Women's Crisis Services and you know talking about something that our CEO Jen Hutton says a lot you know we've got two big beautiful shelters they're very much needed but now we have those and let's work on preventing people from getting into them in the first place and uh, I think there's a lot of parallels uh, between this and that and what we're both talking about here and I think you know I think the prevention and the upstream approaches is key do you want to share a little bit more about uh, your thoughts on these approaches sure um, and and I, I think probably you and I and the other staff at women's crisis services um, would like to see a day when we've worked ourselves out of a job right when there's no demand for uh, shelters um, and I'm in the same boat I mean it, so much of my work over the last couple of years is really focused on on, on preventing death through overdose poisoning. And uh, I look forward to a day when we don't have to spend so much time and effort um, uh, attending funerals and, and speaking with grieving uh, families, whether it's sons, daughters, uh, mothers, fathers, grandparents, and so on. So that's the goal here, right? And we know there are certain things that we can do um, throughout the lifespan in utero uh, to support uh, mom in particular, but also the broader family unit if, if one's in existence. Uh, we know that engaging people in neighborhoods, uh, really at a neighborhood level in in opportunities um, leads to lifelong benefits. We know that, um, you know, there's a, the, the Perry Preschool Project, uh, it's famous, it's a longitudinal study out of the U.S. and uh, one group was offered um, uh, uh, the free daycare for a number of years and one group was not and the group that had that daycare uh, not suggesting daycare is the only way to go here but the point was engagement and opportunities uh, stimulating uh, opportunities uh, for the children well, when you look at those groups all those years later you see less rates of domestic violence you see um, in, in the daycare group you see less rates of uh, crime you see less rates of victimization you see higher income levels you see higher educational attainment and so on and so forth so we know you know the prevention really starts in utero and and, and through childhood and into adulthood uh, ideally right and we know that certain groups of people in uh, right here in Waterloo region but right across Canada right across North America are disproportionately impacted by the absence of, of opportunities, those prevention opportunities. So, you know, uh, when it comes to domestic violence, well, it's, it's, it's women. And when it comes to substance use, it's uh, p- people and neighborhoods that are trend towards the lower income uh, side of things, not because they're doing more drugs, <laughs> um, uh, but because they're easier, easier to... Um, they're susceptible to those kinds of things happening in their neighborhood. Uh, we know th- more recently through the uh, in the fall in Ontario that for the for the first time and we we do a terrible job of collecting race-based data on uh, in Ontario and particularly uh, on drug-related issues. But for the first time, I saw data that showed a higher incidence of uh, overdose fatalities. Uh, in neighborhoods with a higher multicultural mix and that's probably correlated with income as well so you know these some of the opportunities that that i enjoy in the neighborhood that i am privileged to live in are not the same opportunities that um, all people right across waterloo region and enjoy and so those i think the thought is um, yes upstream prevention and uh, ensuring that those most affected are, are, are at the table and, and uh, fully part- able to participate in decisions that affect their lives, but also targeting some of those uh, prevention initiatives uh, w- 
where they're most needed um, in, in some of those neighborhoods that uh, suffer from material deprivation, not because they're not motivated or, you know, they have different morals or values and that kind of thing, but because it's it's the structural stuff that, that is really holding people down. Um, you know, a labor market that's not receptive, an educational system that's not always there for them, the, the absence of good quality, uh, ideally free daycare, leisure opportunities, all that kind of stuff. So the good news is, um, and, and there's lots of good news, I mean, those prevention activities are happening right now in Waterloo Region, um, often in neighborhood associations and community centers. And, and you know, the Crime Prevention Council's sort of been at this for about 25 years now. So that membership and, and Women's Crisis Services has been a part of our council for, for a long, long time. Um, there's a lot of knowledge there and a lot of really committed people and when we look at the wealth in Waterloo region it's really not for uh, absence of resources but um, but perhaps directing some of those resources where they're most needed on the upstream end to prevent you know filling up shelter beds for example right to prevent domestic violence uh, issues of addiction from happening in the first place um, we know so much more now and there's so much uh, capacity here uh, right in Waterloo Region to, to get serious and, and build back better, right? And not go back to the way things were before COVID. There's a, it's a real opportunity before us today. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's it's a positive thing. Like, let's look at what we, I like to look at it on the positive sometimes, you know. I think it's motivating to know there is something we can do that's not all doom and gloom. There, sure, there's a lot of really unfortunate things happening. But, hey, we're aware of them. And we've got some good people and good places working on this and trying to get things done. And to me, that's that's really encouraging and uplifting to talk about and think about. So I think that that's fantastic. Yeah, I wonder if you could share a little bit more about some of these harm reduction strategies that are in place and what kind of things you're working on and what's what's in the works right now. What's not in the works? Um, <laughs> it's so it's so busy uh, everywhere, right? Uh, um, but I, I, you know, when thinking about drug related issues, um, sort of what we introduced in Waterloo Region, and we borrowed it from. Uh, from from Vancouver and, and from Toronto, and they borrowed it from Europe. So, sort of look at four different ways to address issues of problematic substance use. So the first is, and the most important, I think, um, is really around prevention. Right? It's about uh, preventing or delaying the onset of substance use uh, in youth. The longer young people can um, hold off from using substances, the better. Right? We, whether we're talking about alcohol or uh, cannabis, or, uh, the stimulants, the opioids, the depressants, all that kind of, the longer you wait, the better. Because, you know, our brains are, are still developing and, you know, the, the rumor, and I think it's true, uh, it's not just a rumor, but, you know, male brains develop uh, so much, uh, take so much longer to develop than, than female brains, right? They say guys don't really get their sort of hit uh, the maturity of a brain development until you're about 28 years old. Uh, so the longer, the, the longer you can wait, the better. And and there, there's lots of opportunities that way. We have local examples like Better Beginnings, Better Futures up in Waterloo, which works with uh, youth and families at a neighborhood level to provide appealing al alternatives to you know doing drugs behind the school on a Friday or Saturday night. Um, we have examples from uh, Iceland, for example, where some of the cities and towns there have implemented a model that 
uh, re really works on providing solid recreation and leisure opportunities for youth that really promotes family involvement in, in young people's lives, uh, promotes the notion that um, it takes a village to raise a child and, and bases all of that in sort of real-time research. And, and they have results to show for it in Iceland. You know, their rates of cannabis use amongst 15-year-olds uh, are about three times less than what they are in Ontario. Three times. So that's, that's no small thing. And when they, when they got serious about uh, uh, doing that sort of Icelandic model, I mean, they saw dramatic reductions uh, really in the first five years, but over a period of, I think, 15 years, they saw 42% uh, uh, decline in incidences of youth uh, being drunk uh, within the last 30 days. So that's a good thing, right? And so that's the, sort of the prevention. And it's probably the hardest, the hardest of those sort of four pillars to fund. It, it butts up against structural resistance all the time. It's, it's not, um, you know, a really quick win. Sometimes it takes a year, sometimes it takes five, sometimes it takes 10 to really see the benefits. But it's, it's a longer term view that's um, more in line with, um, you know, sometimes even seven, seven generation thinking, right? So Prevention's a, a, a key pillar and um, and the least funded. Uh, there's uh, a, a stream of activity that's really geared towards addiction treatment. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the ideal goal is to have good quality addiction treatment available on demand. So, uh, and on demand means um, that it's there when you need it. That the right kind of service uh, is available right when you need it, not uh, a two-month wait list for or a three-month wait list, for example. And another aspect, of course, is working on harm reduction. And it's, it's less of a dirty word now than it was when, when we started to talk about it, um, you know, 15 years ago and uh, made a whole bunch of efforts. But people will know it as um, perhaps uh, being able to access uh, clean syringes or, um, or, or, or clean pipes. So the paraphernalia that that can go with certain kinds of drug use, particularly the unregulated drug use. They'll know, people will know um, or heard about um, supervised consumption sites, for example, a place where uh, it's a decriminalized environment and for people who um, are using unregulated substances uh, like injection, um, oral or, uh, or snorting, not smoking, um, that, that's a problem in Canada. But uh, for people engaged in those kind of activities, <clears throat> they can go to a, uh, it's now called a consumption and treatment service uh, facility on Duke Street in Kitchener, and uh, they can use with, with some staff supervision and um, potentially access other services that, that are offered at the site. So that's sort of the harm reduction end, and it's, it's, a, it's a bit like a Band-Aid, but um, it's important, right? And the council that, that I'm a part of, we did a lot of heavy lifting um, to make sure that naloxone, uh, an opioid antidote, uh, was available uh, across Ontario. So, uh, you know, as part of the reason you can access uh, for, for people at risk of experiencing or witnessing an opioid overdose, uh, you know, you can pick up naloxone from, from the health unit, uh, in community, through pharmacies, uh, if you're in correctional facilities, um, uh, because the risk of overdose is so high when you get out, you know, reduced tolerance. Um, you can now pick up a naloxone kit on your way out. So that's a good thing, and it's credited with saving uh, thousands and thousands of lives, and no doubt that fatalities would be oh so much higher um, uh, if it wasn't for that kind of harm reduction intervention. It's an emergency medicine, right? And then, you know, the 
in the drug-related world, uh, the predominant intervention is really landed in the laps of, uh, of, of uh, folks in enforcement and the court system and the correction system. That's where the, the vast majority of public dollars are, are spent. And, um, you know, just, and that really started 112 years ago in, in Canada with the with the uh, creation of the Opium Act of 1908. And if people are under any illusion that, you know, Canadian drug laws are based in good evidence, um, let's put that to rest right now because because they're not uh and, and there's you know despite despite the the best efforts uh despite um uh lots of money being um uh, funneled toward the criminal justice system more broadly the inability to uh to affect the supply either the availability of the drugs or uh, the price point of the drugs um it hasn't it hasn't worked and so that's why i think you know, communities across Canada have started to embrace that more of that four-pillar approach and um, look at issues of harm reduction, treatment, and um, ideally prevention. But yeah, the, unfortunately, like the the prevention and is I looked at the uh, the the British Columbia the, their budget recently because that's the kind of thing I do in my spare time, Jenna. Um, who doesn't? Who doesn't? Right. Um, um, when you look at the mental health and, and addictions budget, 95% of that is all downstream. So the da the damage is occurring, the, the harms are occurring, and uh, we're ch you know, st still trying to paste Band-Aids on and, and, and can't do it fast enough. There's simply so much, so many people who, who would benefit from uh, more initiatives in, in harm reduction and treatment. And um, we're, not, we're not making those resources toward prevention the way we should the way the Horner Commission of Canada recommended in 1993 right that 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 um, the criminal justice system in particular but not exclusively start to devote a, a certain percentage of their budgets uh, toward prevention because the Horner Commission uh, recognized that um, you can't arrest your way out of uh, out of so many of what are at the end of the day you know health uh, social type issues so that's the general framework for for addressing drug-related uh, issues, clearly we have so much more work to do, and um, uh, and it's, it's all the more challenging during COVID and in the midst of what is a raging crisis of um, uh, of unprevented uh, poisoning deaths from from that toxic, unregulated market, and it's completely toxic, and and there's about a zero percent chance uh, that that it's going to get safer and healthier anytime soon. So. Lots of pressures on, and particularly on the downstream folks um, who are working in uh, shelter environments, for example, and working in outreach. Um, yeah, it's it's tough, but again, like the, lots, Waterloo Region is really well placed to to knock it out of the park to become even a national model for doing better. We have a long history of collaborating really well together. We, like we talk, um, we're not as siloed as so many other. Uh, uh, communities uh, uh, across Canada and you know we're wealthy here it's not for lack of resources right there is lots of money there's lots of people willing to roll up their sleeves and uh, and do better and pitch in and you know your board members and other board members other volunteers right across the region are are, are, are testament to that um, every day every day even during a, a pandemic right Oh, it's for sure. Yeah, like because of the generous support we've received this year, actually, we've been very, very fortunate to be able to add an addiction support worker 
uh, at the shelters and that was a big thing for us it was really exciting that we're able to do that and I think really needed right now especially like you said um, how it's been tough during shelters and those working downstream and I can definitely attest to that I know that it's been difficult in the shelters right now and like we talked about before it's a coping mechanism for women who've experienced extreme trauma um, and it's a reality and it's just really nice that we're able to now have a position supporting those like dedicated to supporting those who are experiencing this you know our workers definitely tried their best before to do as much as they could but I think it's it's a whole different ball game when you have someone who's dedicated to do that work it it really gives them the time and the space to kind of dig into it and do what's needed so that was really exciting for us to see that is good news. That's really good news. There's a sort of a phrase in harm reduction um, that you want to meet people where they're at, um, both both literally and, and figuratively, right? And um, having someone on site at uh, at the shelter is exactly what exactly what you need. And we'd love to see more of that, um, not just locally but right across Canada. And you know, one of the I worked at a um, shelter last summer um, during the sort of a uh, uh, related to the pandemic, where uh, for 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 guys who were uh, lacked stable housing, they were living in encampments, um, and, and really, you know, all that sort of social distancing is simply not possible um, in, in some of those other shelter environments. So. Um, sort of took over a, a multi-purpose facility, turned it into a shelter, provided beds and um, uh, provided three square meals a day. Um, it was a low barrier shelter, so f f more for high acuity men. And one of the really great things that happened there was some of those redeployed people were coming out of Ontario Works. Um, there were people with uh, strong like psychotherapy skills there. There was uh, an agency was able to devote a few hours every week uh, to assist with housing and, um, and so on and so forth. And it worked. It worked for the guys who were who were ready uh, in a way that it, it can't work unless you have someone with those skills on site, uh, available almost on demand, like like your addiction worker, for example. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is. It's great. And it's something you had said a while ago that stuck with me um, when you said it's about thinking about who's at risk and helping who's at risk. And it's so I think this kind of this is speaking to that you know we got to help who's at risk and if that's where they are we got to go there and we got to help those people and get them what they need so so yeah I think that's really important and um, speaking about things that are important I'm curious to ask you uh, why this conversation actually is important to you oh uh, good question um, well, well it's important because um, you know not just through so my so-called professional life with the with the crime prevention council where where there are intersections oh so much with issues of domestic violence or, or problematic substance use addiction and uh, so on and so forth but um but also on a personal level right i mean um you know when i was younger i i didn't know that i would be doing what i'm doing today having a conversation with you about um things that we're talking about. Uh, I didn't know I would land in the role that I landed in, but I did want to leave the world uh, in a better place than the way I found it. And, um, and so it's important to have those these kind of conversations and it's, 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 it's tremendously important that uh, community members are engaged, that it's not, we just don't turn it over to, you know, sort of a, a professional cl class of, uh, of paid workers. Um, 
because that notion that it takes a village to raise a child really is true, whether you hold a social work degree or not, whether you uh, have a medical degree or not, um, whether you work in government or not, whether you work in an agency or not. And um, it, it really does, uh, you know, healthy communities, um, both from a, a safety point of view and a health point of view, uh, are those communities that are sort of more heterogeneous uh, by, by way of income, by way of race, by way of gender, by uh, orientations and so on, and um, where people really get together and, and make their community um, really livable. And, you know, when we look at sort of income-related data by, by neighborhood, you know, if neighborhoods are predominantly on the lower income side of things, self-reported health com outcomes are worse. Uh, and you see that uh, in reality, too, in terms of premature morbidity, morbidity and mortality. If you look at higher income neighborhoods, that doesn't exist. If you look at neighborhoods that are mixed, so same, same kind of um, income profile, low income, but mix it in with middle and higher income people, for example, health outcomes improve. And, and they improve because of, you know, your social environment. And, and we, we know that, um, we've known that for a long time, that uh, your social environment uh, has such a tremendous impact on, on your health, uh, safety, and, and well-being. So how do you get to a better policy environment? How do you address some of those structural deficiencies that um, affect the people that we purport to serve? And well, it starts with a conversation, right? And um, uh, and who you meet and, and how you're able to engage and, and what you're able to advance to, to leave the world in a better place than the way we found it. So uh, yeah, these conversations, they're important to me on, on both a personal and, and professional level. And I'm grateful for, I mean, you're doing a podcast. That's it's amazing, right? And advancing <laughs> those conversations uh, in Waterloo Region and beyond. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, it's really important to me too. On I, I, I agree with you both, a professional and a personal level. And um, something we always say is, you know, we all have a role to play in this. And I think it's something that we can we can all do a little bit of something, whether you're working in these fields or not. There's always something that you can do to help. And um, sometimes I think it can be tricky for people to know just what to do to help. So that's one other thing I want to ask you, you know, this is called She Is Your Neighbor. And we really think, you know, domestic violence happens in all sorts of neighborhoods to different people. But I'm wondering, and I, again, we all have a role to play in ending this too. So I'm wondering your thoughts, like what is it that we can all do to be better neighbors to those experiencing domestic violence? And maybe you can speak specifically to those who are dealing with addictions as well. Yeah, we all have a role to play and it's not necessarily a steady state throughout throughout one's life. You know, sometimes life does get busy and um, not able to uh, engage as, as much as perhaps we'd like to. Um, and, and for those people who are uh, not engaged, then, um, you know, I would encourage folks to, to have conversations, to say hi to your neighbor, um, literally your neighbor, and um, um, to become involved in the community um, in, in which you live. Um, um, there's enough people, you, you know, at, at Women's Crisis Services and Crime Prevention Council and, um, and other agencies in town that I can point people in the right direction if they want to learn more, if they want to get involved. Um, and I got to imagine it's the same on your end. Like there is no lack of opportunity to, to further that goal of sort of working yourself out of a job, right? Um, We've got a uh, large collaborative, uh, you know, following the, 
the, the pandemic, uh, Keep Families Safe uh, campaign that's crime prevention is a part of. I mean, there's some serious clues on there for people. We, we've had campaigns before um, that were popular through the school boards uh, to say hi. And it's, it's, it's less about reinforcing stranger danger. Um, it's more about saying hi to your neighbor in uh, whatever language that is. So, uh, and, and in that way, I mean, I, th I think there's a real opportunity to break down the stereotypes and stigma that, 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 that holds us back as a society, right? That holds uh, on an individual level, but also on a structural level. I mean, you're talking about drug-related issues earlier, or um, I, I mean, it's straight up structural discrimination, um, uh, stigmatization, uh, stereotyping that has really prevented serious movement on, 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 on reducing accidental uh, and fatal drug poisonings in Canada. It, it, it would be, it, in the absence of COVID, um, our number one public health issue uh, in terms of premature death, um, probably since the Spanish flu. And, and what is that? You know, it's, uh, it's a different set of standards that apply to people that use uh, uh, unregulated substances. So not all substances, uh, you know, a glass of wine, a, uh, a bottle of beer is, is still quite acceptable, but um, um, different drugs are treated differently and that's it's a really long answer to uh, and, uh, and not a very good answer probably but uh, step outside of the away from the screen and, and go for those walks uh, get engaged in your communities and um, uh, would be the general advice and and for people who are, are predisposed to uh, or have an interest in addressing sort of the policies and programs laws um, there's lots of lots of groups that are that are working away on that and mentioned you know the sort of the the march of 12,000 people on the streets last year and all the activity since I mean there's a there, there are thousands of people in Waterloo region working to address uh, racial discrimination for example and there are hundreds of people working to address drug-related issues and you know in 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 the areas of domestic violence um, we wouldn't be as far along if if we weren't having those conversations, if people weren't rolling up their sleeves to, to volunteer or, or to support from behind um, uh, folks like uh, Women's Crisis Services and others, right? I agree. I think it all starts with those conversations, and I really appreciate you saying that, and, and I totally agree with you. The goal is to work ourselves out of a job, so if we keep having enough conversations, hopefully one day, probably not soon, but hopefully one day we will get there, so I will keep going towards that. So thank you so much for being here today, Michael. I really loved talking with you. It was great. Yeah, it was good for me, too. Uh, thank you so much, Jennifer, and the staff in the background. For, for all the efforts at, at Women's Crisis Services. Uh, it's no small thing. And um, yeah, it's been a pleasure to, to have a conversation on a, on a lovely afternoon with you. Thank you to our episode sponsor, 570 News. Local reporters and local journalists keeping you connected to your community 24-7 with the latest breaking news from where you live. Stay up to date with everything happening in your ever-changing universe with 570 News. Kitchener's local source for news, sports, and talk. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.